Well, good morning, everybody. How are you? If you have your Bibles, I'm going to have you turn to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. And before I read the text, I'm going to read something else to you just to kind of preface my uh, comments before we read the word. Yeah, we need to release the kids, I guess. Flip 180, you can go now. It's okay. Amen. Would you just join with me just for a moment? And let's just uh, center in on asking God's grace to be upon our time in the Word. Father, we just come and we just say we want more of you than we've ever had before. And we believe and know that you've given us everything that pertains to your life and to becoming like you. That when we talk about the fullness of Christ... And being filled with the riches of the fullness of Christ. It's not something that's out there. It's a reality. I thank you this morning that because of the resurrection, you now live and dwell in the heart of every believer. And Jesus, you are our hope of glory. And we just pray that as we share the word of God, that there would be such an anointing and such a grace that we would see things that we've not seen before, that more of that fullness would become a reality to us now. We ask that you would help those that are hearing, that, Father, that as the truth is spoken, that you would just tailor make this word to each and every heart and every home and every person here. And, Lord, you know everyone by name. You know where they're from and where they're at right now. God, I pray that you would draw us by your Spirit unto yourself. And Lord, we do just celebrate today all that you accomplished through your cross and the validation that the resurrection represented that uh, was the stamp of your approval, Father, upon your Son, that everything that he did through the cross, all the pain, all the suffering, all that he endured, accomplished what you sent him to do. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before I read Philippians chapter 3, and the message I'm going to share uh, this morning is called The Surpassing Greatness of Knowing Christ Jesus. And that's a pretty large subject. It's a pretty large thing to try to, in about a half hour, maybe 35, 40, 45, 50, 55, no, just kidding. Um, in a short period of time, to try to unpack a passage out of Philippians chapter 3. But before we read that text, I, w- I want to just uh, share something out of a book that I've been reading, and you'll kind of know where I'm going after I, I read it. I have real concerns about where the Western church is. And we are to not be just relegated to be a subculture, but truly we're to be a kingdom culture that is a counterculture to the culture of the world. But because of technology and the various mediums that are out there, there is an undercurrent that's just sweeping along with the world. And instead of us radically transforming the world in which we live, Whether we know it or not, we are slowly being shaped to become irrelevant to the world in which we're called to reach. And so I've been reading a book uh, that's called The Shallows, How and What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. So before I read the text out of Philippians, I want to read just a couple paragraphs out of this book called The Shallows. How many of you remember the the movie, and it's kind of an iconic science fiction movie called uh, 2001 Odyssey, okay? So those of you that have never watched that futuristic, uh, you know, science fiction movie, it was kind of, a again, just a classic, but this guy starts out referring to this movie. 
And in the movie, Nicholas Carr starts out describing what happened in the movie. It says, Dave, stop. Stop, will you? Stop, Dave. Will you stop? So the supercomputer Hal pleads with the implacable astronaut Dave Bowman in a famous and weirdly poignant scene towards the end of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Bowman, having nearly been sent to a deep space death by a malfunctioning machine, is calmly, coldly disconnecting the memory circuits that controls its artificial brain. Dave, my mind is going, Hal says forlornly. I can feel it. I can feel it. It was strange because it was a computer, but he said he could feel it. Well, Nicholas Carr says this, I can feel it too. Over the last few years, I've had an uncomfortable sense that someone or something has been tinkering with my brain, remapping the neural circuitry, programming the memory. My mind isn't going so far as I can tell, but it's changing. I'm not thinking the way I used to think. I feel it most strongly when I'm reading. I used to find it easy to immerse myself in a book or a lengthy article. My mind would get caught up in the twist of the narrative or the turns of the argument. I would spend hours strolling through long stretches of prose. That's rarely the case anymore. Now my concentration starts to drift after a page or two. I get fidgety. I lose the thread. I begin looking for something else to do. Anybody want to say amen already? I feel like I'm always dragging my wayward brain back to the text. The deep reading that used to come naturally has become a struggle. I think I know what's going on. For well over a decade now, I've been spending a lot of time online, searching and surfing and even sometimes adding to the great databases of the Internet. But what the net seems to be doing to me is chipping away at my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Can you say that word with me? Concentration and contemplation. Whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way the net distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in a sea of words. Now I just zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. And what I just shared, Carr talks about how we're bombarded with swiftly, swiftly moving bits of information that comes to us packaged the way the world and those that have created the net have packaged the information to be distributed. But the danger is that it's had a conforming effect on the way we think and upon the way we feel. And the net just doesn't want to affect basically what I think and what I feel, but it's dealt with the capacity of how I can even think and how I can even feel. And so we are stunned and we are shocked by events that happen in our culture. And we say and make statements like, how could a person do something like this? When we see what happened at the grade school in Connecticut, we're just all stunned. We say, how does a person get there? Well, what is happening is we are a people that no longer have a capacity to think deeply or to feel deeply. We are being shaped and we are being formed to only just moment by moment check in with reality and to feel the way we should feel about what somebody says to us for the moment. And so, guess what? We have all these gadgets around us and they feed us these swiftly moving bits of information. And when we get them, we have a thought or we have a momentary feeling of emotion, but then we're gone. We've got to move on because there's so much more out there to think about and to feel about. The result is that we no longer think deeply 
or feel deeply, we no longer have the ability to concentrate or, more importantly, to contemplate on the things that are really important. Now, I'm going to, just for your pleasure, I'm going to share with you some of the ways that we then are living what I call a distracted, driven life. Now, we talk about the life-giving, purpose-driven life. We talk about the passion-driven life. We talk about the Christ-centered life, the cross-centered life. We talk about all these phrases that we want our life to represent. I'm gonna, I want to have an eternal focused, eternal perspective. We want our life to be motivated and driven by things that are really important, Correct? But this is not to offend you, but I do want to say I want to interrupt your momentary stream of consciousness in the midst of even all the distractions in the room. And I want to say to you, many of us are living a distraction-driven life. And so there are many ways, and I want to just kind of talk about just for a moment some of the many ways in which we have become captured by a distracted, driven life. We have Facebook. We have blogs. We have websites. We have Instagram. We have tweets that we Twitter. We have text. We have Snapchat. We have Pinterest. We have Foursquare. And one of the things somebody was telling me about Foursquare, Foursquare is a thing where you report in where you're going to be or where you're at. And then if they're on Foursquare as well, then you can find out where they're at. And so I'm finding out that you need to both have your friends and your enemies on Foursquare to where you can track both friend and enemy to avoid your enemies but be around your friends. Right? And so we have Instagram. We have Foursquare. We have smartphones, we have iPads, we have iPods, we have radio, we have cable television, and for all the oldies that are here today, we have the shopping channel, thank God. We have video games, etc. It goes on and on and on the ways in which the precious moments of your life are being wasted by living a distracted, driven life. And so we would think that, wait, wait a minute, it should be different in the church. But churches are having to deal with the reality of how we deal with technology in the church and how we communicate the message or how we stop people from being distracted in our services while we give the message. And so with that, I'm going to share a video where we can be distracted from the message just for a moment. This is the way some churches are dealing with technology. For the consideration of those around you, kindly turn off all cell phone, electronic, and messaging devices at this time. If your device should go off during announcements today, in addition to your regular weekly offering, you will be fined $25. Should your device go off during prayer concerns, the fine will increase to $50. If your device goes off during our sermon today, you're going to hell. (laughs) Remember, God wants your complete attention. Thank you, and enjoy the service. Westminster Presbyterian Church in Burbank. Sunday services at 9 and 10.30. No shoes, no shirt, no service. I want you to know I'm going to talk to the leadership of uh, New Covenant this week about adopting that, all right? (laughs) Yeah, the ushers are going to have to upgrade the fire extinguishers. So as we go to this text, I want to ask you to do something for me this morning. I would like you to drag your wayward brain to the passage of Scripture that we're going to talk about. Will you? Will you take your wayward brain and heart to this text? And I want you to, as we read it, I want you to contemplate and concentrate with me on the heavenly possibilities 
and the eternal certainties that are found in this passage. Because I think one of the greatest things that would be a tragedy here this morning is if on resurrection day, in which we have set a time, not just to have another service, but to, to, to celebrate and to commemorate the passion, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus, that somehow we wouldn't stop in the middle of the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God, and we say, God, take us deeply into your Word. And with concentration, but then, because I'm going to discipline myself to gaze upon God in His Word, that I'm going to ask that His Holy Spirit help me contemplate to where I just don't go through a service and there is a loss of meaning about what this day is about. Because the danger is that many of us, we think that it's just another date on our calendar. And every year that passes from the point in time that the cross and the resurrection happen, we're going not just centuries, but millennia away from the event. And I don't want it just to be something that's an historical fact in your mind, but the more I contemplate upon what Jesus did, and the more I see the victory that he produced, and I meditate on it, I stand there at the foot of the cross, and I gaze upon him. And I begin to examine his wounds. And I begin to, like Thomas, when he appeared to Jesus, or when, when Jesus appeared to Thomas, Jesus appeared both resurrected but crucified. And you go, well, Lynn, this is all supposed to be about the resurrection today. There would have been no need for a resurrection unless there was first the cross. And what the resurrection was all about, it was the exclamation point. It wasn't a footnote. It was the explanation point at the end of a whole spiritual work and purpose that God did to bring about your salvation. But the resurrection is about a validation. It is about a vindication that truly what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient to save you. And I find that when all of a sudden I get disconnected and start living a distractive, driven life, and I no longer focus on what is important and what is the real meaning of this day. Why is it important? What did Jesus do? And as I ask those quick questions, what did Jesus do? What is the meaning? Do you Have you taken long enough to go back to the foot of the cross and to gaze upon him and look at his passion and look at his suffering and then go to the empty tomb and stare down into that abyss and see that truly he is not there but he is risen? Have you taken time long enough to go there to then have those questions answered? Martin Luther said this, and most of you know that Martin Luther was a, just a tremendous man of God that really began a revolution of where the church was at in the 1500s when he encouraged the believers to focus upon the cross and what Jesus did through the cross, it was reported that he said to one of those that was beside him, he said, whenever I focus upon what Jesus did for me, it was as if he died yesterday. How many of you this morning, because you have this week, the week that we call Holy Week, and as we have gone through this week and did any of you remember that Friday was Good Friday? And my kids were off in spring break, and what I did was I noticed that when they were there vegging during the day, they just had a stack of videos that they had gotten from uh, the library. And then there was the basketball games of the tournament. And what I did was, as a parent, I stepped down there and I said, I, I see what you guys have got stacked up in the wings for the day, but I want to remind you that there was a man that suffered for your sin today. Not just for you, but as you, dying in your place. And so, I don't mind you getting a movie, but how about let's get out the movie, The Passion, 
and thus get into touch again with the meaning where it's not just a day, it becomes something that's an experiential reality in my life. That's where God wants to take us today. Let's read this passage of Scripture. How many of you got your wayward brain going, well, I've been there. I've been waiting on you to get to the text. Verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3 says, Paul said, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Listen to how he described his intimate relationship with the Lord. He said there's nothing comparable to it. And he goes, I've had some other life experiences And things that I thought would add value to my life, my education and my religious affiliations and and my ethnic identity. And I, I began to build some form of an identity that I felt would give me some type of significance, something that I could project and present to people to say that I am somebody. But he said, but then I met Jesus. And as I've grown in intimacy with him and as I've grown to walk with him, I've discovered one thing, that everything that I thought added value to me, the information that I got, the things that I learned, the things that I I grew into my understanding to know, as I came into the superiority of the knowledge of who Jesus is, I found there is nothing that can compare with him. And so he describes this relationship with Jesus as incomparable. And he says it's not just something where it's a close comparison. He said, I found that the things that I was out there chasing, they are rubbish and they are garbage in comparison to that relationship. Now in this passage, he goes on to share that there are two aspects of truth that are foundational to an incomparable relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is my challenge for those of you that are living distracted, uh, driven lives. A lot of you, your relationship with God is is not dissatisfying, but you're unsatisfied with it. And some of you go, well, you told me that when I served Jesus, my life would be like that, and really, that's not the way it's been. And so there is kind of a, a dissatisfaction that I have, that the joy I thought that I would find in knowing God is really not there. The peace that I thought that I would find in knowing God is not there. I find that really some of the dissatisfaction that occurs in the life of, G- uh, in the life of believers is not God's fault, it's ours. We get out of our relationship with God what we're willing to invest in it. And unless we're willing to concentrate, and I'm talking about really drilling down deeply into the truth of God's Word, you are going to be the jet skier and you're going to be going along the surface of spiritual realities when God wants you to experience the depths of Jesus Christ. You go, well, is it really possible? Here was a man that was willing to give his life and endure all sorts of suffering because he had got a hold of something that he said is incomparable to anything else that I had in my life experience. That's the type of spiritual life I want. Give me something to live for. Give me something to die for. Give me something that motivates me every day to get up and to say there is something more than living in the shallows. And so I find that the church out there is getting shallower and shallower and shallower and we're not experiencing what God has intended for us to experience in the reality of our salvation. But we've got to say, God, teach me to again concentrate and to contemplate. Now, the two aspects of salvation or truth that he talks about leads to a a relationship with Jesus that is profound. As he said this in verse 9, he said, I want to be found in him, not having my own righteousness or my own self-righteousness that comes from obeying rules 
but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. But this is the two things that he says cause him to have a relationship with Christ that is incomparable. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And the second one is, he says, I want to have fellowship with him in suffering. And so this morning, if your relationship with Jesus does not know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his suffering, I'm going to say, get out of the shallows and press on into the deep. He said, listen, you can have an incomparable, uncomparable relationship of knowing Jesus Christ, but the way you know him that way is by encountering him in resurrection life and power, but also in the fellowship of suffering. And they're like conjoined twins. You cannot separate the reality of the cross and his suffering from the reality of his resurrection. And so what does it mean to know him in the power of his resurrection? Well, I believe that the first thing I want to say is that knowing him in the power of his resurrection is just, again, moving the resurrection out of a historical context into an experiential reality for me today. What does the resurrection, what can it mean for me now today? How can it change my life? Well, that was one of the burdens that Paul had in Ephesians chapter 1, about verse 18, 19, he prayed several things, but one of the things that he prayed almost in every, for every one of the churches is he said, I pray that they would know him in the power of the resurrection. They would know him in the all-surpassing greatness of his power, which God demonstrated when he raised him from the dead. Now, why did God conduct that type of a demonstration to us? Do you know that Jesus could have got out of the grave secretly? He could have just said, I did what I, the Father sent me to do. I obeyed him. I accomplished the work, and now I'm just going to return back to heaven. I don't need to share this with anybody. It's just about my point of obedience to the Father. We need to understand that the resurrection was a demonstration by God. It was an exhibition by God. And there were two groups that God was wanting to bring that exhibition and demonstration to. Number one, he wanted to demonstrate it to the principalities and powers. (laughs) And I want you to know, once that exhibition was over, all of the power of hell knew that there was absolutely nothing. No weapon devised, no trap, no sin, no snare, no strategy that could ever work to overturn and to thwart the purpose of God. Brothers and sisters, God has shown us the end game. God has demonstrated through the resurrection God's end game, and the game is over for the devil, and he knows it. Because when you take what is the best of the devil, the best punch that he could administer, when you take the best threat, the best force, the very best that hell could deliver to him, and it does not affect the outcome, there's nothing else you can do but capitulate. But that demonstration was not just for the devil. And it wasn't just for principalities and powers. It was for us. To show us that right now there is a present availability of that power, not just for the future, but the availability of the power and the might and the force and the ability of God to help us now. And I can see there is a change in in our Faith to believe that. When I was growing up as a child and I realized that, you know, you have a a life experience and your life experience is not the sum total of all experience. But it does give you a perspective. And it is a perspective from your perch and I get that. 
But I used to see how people would come to the Lord when I was growing up. And it is much different than how people come to the Lord today. And what we do is that we administer a salvation to people that's kind of on an installment basis. When what we do is we engage them and, and we say, here, have a little that could be available to you now. And so we find people over 20, 30 years wrestling with sin conditions, bondages and addictions and things that have shaped them in their past life. But they bring it over. They understand they're forgiven, but they're not free. And so we introduce them to forgiveness and then we just help them through counseling and and through coaching and through all these various tools that we use and they are good. But I can remember some people that were addicts and alcoholics and people that were sex addicts coming down to an altar and when they left the altar... The power of the cross and the power of the resurrection was encountered and experienced. And I know of, as a child, alcoholics that after they encountered the crucified but risen Jesus were changed forever after that moment. They would say, I've never even been tempted to take another drop. And I want to say, well, is that just the exception to the rule? Or do we need some type of progressive resurrection for people? No, I believe that what it is is that we believe God for far too little instead of believing Him for what the Bible. But we've got to focus. We've got to concentrate. We've got to contemplate. We've got to dig down and drill down deep into the Word of God and mine up the promises that He bought with His own blood for you and I to avail ourselves to. Now, some of us understand that healing for us was a process. It didn't come instantaneous. But I want you to also Lift up your expectation in God. Some of you have been struggling for years and years and you are just about to believe a distortion and a lie that you can never be free. I'm here to tell you this morning, you're not only forgiven, but you are free. And the way that freedom comes is you encountering the power that's in the resurrection. You're not without help this morning. You're not without help. His power is available to you now. If that very same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, it now is quickening. It is bringing to life your mortal body. It is changing. It is transforming you if you respond to it. And so I want to say, Thank God for the objective truth based upon an historical event that Jesus is raised from the dead. I also thank you for the experiential revelation of it. As if I am there to allow the blast of the resurrection to hit me. As if I am right there in the sepulcher when that that unapproachable explosion of light occurred and the power of God raced through his body. I want to be right in the middle of the blast and say, let your resurrection life hit me and go through my body as you are raised from the dead. Again, Luther said, it is as if to me Jesus died only yesterday. I want to say, could God make the reality of the resurrection so real to you and I this morning that we're like those angels that were there inside the tomb watching the power of God course through his body and explode into life? Could God make it so real to me that I'm there? Matter of fact, in Christ's mind, you were there. For you were that dead body that was lying upon that stone slab when the power of God came through Christ because He not only died for you and was raised for you, but He died as you and was raised as you. I want to go to the second aspect that Paul talks about in this scripture. And he says, not only do I want to know him, and this is what 
has caused me to have an incomparably great relationship is that I come to know him in the power of his resurrection. But he also says I've come to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. The Greek word here is koinonia. It means the joining together with him in sufferings. And beloved, I used to think when I read this scripture that this was somehow about me taking the trials and difficulties and pains in my own life and suffering in a way in which Jesus suffered. In other words, that we respond to God and not react to the devil. That again, I want the pain in my life, the difficulties, the trials, the struggles that we go through, I want to I do it in a way in which it's bringing glory to God. And I believe there's a truth in that. And I think last month when I was here, I taught on how to pass tests. But really, when you begin to, again, drill down on this text, it's not saying, Jesus, I want you to come to me in the midst of my sufferings and fellowship with me while I'm enduring them for you in the right way. But Paul said, to know him in the power of his resurrection, you also must be willing to fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings. In other words, you go to that place of where he suffered. You go to the place where he had his passion. If I want to really know what somebody is going through, I've got to go where they're at. And so that's why we visit the sick. That's why we go to the jails. That's why we go to places where people are suffering and in need, and we go and we sit down, and sometimes there are no words that can comfort them in their pain. That's why sometimes you just sit there and you hold their hand and you hold them and you're just with them. And that in the pain and the suffering of their moment, there is just a little bit of an understanding that comes to you of what they are going through. Now, what Paul was describing is not inviting Jesus to come to you in the difficulties of your life. No, it is that you go back and you go to the place of his greatest suffering and his greatest pain, which means that I've got to go back to the cross every day in my life. I've got to visit the, the empty sepulcher every day in my spiritual life. I've got to visit the empty empty sepulcher. Otherwise, I'll feel that there is no help or hope for me. And I'll come up with a scheme of how I can help myself. But he invites us every day to come to the experiential reality of the resurrection. So every day I've got to revisit the empty tomb. But not only do I need to every day revisit the empty tomb, I've got to go back to the cross. You say, Lynn, why is it important? Because I find that sometimes I can become, in the midst of my pain and my difficulty, I can begin to lose perspective and thinking that what I'm going through is the worst thing that has ever happened to any individual. That somehow my pain is somehow comparable or equivalent and so what I begin to do is it does something. When I lose perspective, it does something in how I even relate to Jesus. And I become dissatisfied in my relationship with him. You're, you've let me down. You've really let me down, Jesus. And so I begin to become ungrateful for what he has supplied to me. I become even unthankful for the suffering. It's like, yeah, Jesus died, Jesus suffered. I get it, I get it, get it, get it, get it. Let me, let me check my tweets. Let me check my Facebook. Yeah, I get it, Jesus died for me. Yep, 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 yep. Let me see what Instagrams I can look at. I've got to go to the cross. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, he said this when he was beginning his ministry, and his grandfather was a preacher. And he was just starting out in the ministry, and he said that he chose to teach on the text that we're justified by faith, not by works. And he was just starting, getting his legs of preaching, you know, and he was getting out there. And, and uh, he began to talk about the cross when he was teaching on that text. 
and he said that he heard the gentle voice of his grandfather said, say that again to them. And he looked back, and it was his grandfather saying, Charles, say the part about the cross again to them. Because if you minimize it in any way, the resurrection won't mean anything. Let me give you a couple other quotes. Let me give you another Spurgeon quote that I just found to be so powerful. He said this. He said, as a Christian, I encourage you to abide hard at the cross and search the mystery of his wounds. Behind his wounds, the mysteries will be revealed. Only then will we begin to see why he suffered such and what his suffering accomplished. John Calvin, again the great theologian of the Reformation, said, When I come close enough to gaze upon the disfigurement of the Son of God, when I find myself appalled by his marred appearance, I begin to reckon afresh that it is me that I see in him. Isaiah 53 describes a perfect picture, and this was an Old Testament prophet. But God gave Isaiah a 2020 perspective about the suffering Messiah that was to come. And he said that he would be so bruised and so battered and so beaten that he would be unrecognizable. He would be marred in his appearance. And we say, you know, why would God allow it to go that far? Because only when I see a human being so marred beyond recognition do I begin to see myself and the condition of my true condition in my sin. Because, you know, we get a life, we get a family, we get a job, and we start feel, feeling good about ourselves, don't we? And I forget the suffering of the Savior. I forget why he died and for what, what he died for and what he accomplished by him dying in the manner in which he died. And it's only when I come close and stand at the foot of the cross and I begin to examine every wound, I begin to look at the amount of blood that is shed I begin to see the piercing and I begin to see the wound in his side and I begin to see the crown of thorns and I begin to see the stripes on his back and I begin to see the agony of his soul. Then all of a sudden, an attitude of gratitude begins to return back to my spiritual life. All of a sudden, I begin to appreciate the provision all of a sudden, my life, spiritual life becomes not something that I'm dissatisfied with, but all of a sudden there is a renewing of the joy of my salvation. This morning, my brothers and sisters, would we all of us walk out of here with a renewed sense of the joy of our salvation? As we look to the one that was crucified for us, that died and was raised from the dead. And the hymn writer said, Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget your agony, please lead me once again to Calvary. We want to know why people are not being transformed the way they used to be transformed because there is an absence of the preaching of the gospel. And the preaching of the gospel is the cross and the resurrection. Some of you are saying, you're kind of like this old-time preacher. Well, maybe the preachers need to be born again all over again because it's not going to be a bunch of pep talks that are going to get you to heaven. It is the blood that saved you, the blood that bought you, the blood that redeemed you, and only the blood that can wash you whiter than snow. We've got to get it. And one man said that when we stand at the cross and get close enough 
to the fire of that love, then those sparks can fall on me and my love will be rekindled. I want to get close today. I want to get right into that empty tomb. But before I get to the empty tomb, I want to get right at the foot of the cross and say, oh, fire of love, let the sparks from that tree fall down on me and may my passion for Jesus be renewed. To where when I leave here, I say there is nothing that can distract me. There is nothing that can be a substitute to pacify me as I live in this life because the rest of it is garbage. All of the toys, all the money, all of the the things that we say, this will give me significance in life. We will walk away and say, I don't have any other need for you because I have Christ. Are we believing believers this morning? I believe Christ is all that I need. For in Him is the power of the resurrection. And in Him is the power of the blood, the blood of the cross, to save me and to transform me and to bring me new life. I want you to stand with me, and if the musicians will come or you'll put on music, I just real quickly... want to give us an opportunity to respond to the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. If you would, just all over the auditorium, just begin to thank the Lord. Today, I want to know you, Jesus, and the power of your resurrection. I want to feel the force of your life, the power of your life break into my reality. And to experience that, I'm willing to fellowship with you. And I want to say I'm wanting to be returned in my gratefulness for your suffering. I want to become satisfied with your supply. I want your, my love for you to no longer be indifferent and lukewarm. Let the fire from the cross, the sparks fall upon me and rekindle my love anew. Just quickly, if you're here today and you say, you know, I'm here and I'm a guest here for Easter. The the gospel as it's preached today, this message, I feel the Holy Spirit speaking to me. And I've come to the conclusion we cannot come to God unless God draws us. You go, I may not understood everything you said today, but I feel the Holy Spirit drawing me. If you're here today and you say, I want to know Jesus, would you just raise your hand? I see that hand. Anybody else? You would just say, I'm here and I feel the warming of my heart by the Holy Spirit. I feel the Lord drawing me. Is there anybody else here that you would say, I want to know Jesus? The second thing I want to say is if you're a Christian here and you say, you know, I name the name of Christ, but I've been, my heart has been far away from God. I've been dissatisfied with my, my relationship with Him and I'm distant from Him today. You'd be honest enough to raise your hand and say, you've been preaching to me. Just raise your hand. Just in a moment of vulnerability and honesty. I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit today would make real to you the cross and the power of his resurrection. 
Lord, I ask, God, that you would make this a moment of transformation for every hungry heart, every awakened heart, every heart that is saying, God, I want to know you, and I want to know you in a deeper way. Lord, only you can draw us unto yourself. And so, Holy Spirit, lead us. I want you just to begin to pray today. Just in the remaining moments that we have together, you just you begin to invite the Holy Spirit to do a work within your heart. Reawaken us. And Lord, I ask that this message would go beyond the today, but tomorrow when we sit down at that computer and, and we're immediately tempted to begin to drift and to be driven by distraction. Oh God, I pray that you would help us learn to concentrate and contemplate on what is important. And Jesus, we say that you are the only thing you are the one thing. You are the one, one thing. Nothing else matters. And I ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this morning, if you prayed in that moment of prayer that we were praying and you said, I've never asked the Lord to come in my life, but I did this morning. I want you to talk to some of the people in the church here. Number two, if you feel like God is doing a work to, to cause you to rededicate and consecrate your life to the Lord, you need to share that because we all need prayer partners, accountability partners, and people that can encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Do you want me to release them or do you want to say something? <clears throat> yes, the altar team is here if you want more prayer. And we can just say, thank God for the resurrection. Can we just give the Lord just a praise to him? Lord, for all that you've done, all that you're doing, all that you're yet to do, we say thank you, God. You're worthy. Be blessed as you go. Walk in the power of his resurrection. And enjoy the time with your family. Be blessed.